0: In both 2007 and 2021, the overall employment rate for new law school graduates was 91.9%. And that's why some say law schools should use caution now when making admissions decisions to avoid a repeat of the new lawyer job market during the Great Recession. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm discussing law school admissions and employment outcomes with Aaron Taylor. He's the executive director of the Access-Lex Center for Legal Education Excellence. Aaron, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Now, much of your work with Access-Lex centers on data research and sharing what your findings, besides that, really great employment outcome for 2007 and 2021. Are there other similarities that perhaps folks should take note of between the two graduating class years?
1: Yeah, well, you know, both of those years reflected, um, you know, a, a, a real robust legal job market for brand new lawyers. And, and much of that aligns with, with the overall job market. You know, unemployment now is, is, is pretty low. We're almost at full employment overall. And, and in 2007, it was a little higher than it is now, the overall employment rate, but it still was 5% or below. Uh, so we're really seeing the effects of the larger macro picture on the uh, entry-level legal job market. But a more ominous similarity between those two years, 2007 and 2021, is is the looming economic difficulty. Right. Um, so the Great Recession started in December of 2007. And and by 2008, we began to see the law grad employment market, that entry level uh, legal job market. We, we began to see the employment rate fall. Um, and, and so now there's much talk about the possibility uh, of a recession that's looming, um, and time will tell if we actually see one. And if so, it will impact the entry-level legal job market. We hope not as, as, as significantly and strongly as it did in the aftermath of the Great Recession. But the truth is, we don't know. Um, but, but one thing seems more likely than not, at least from my perspective, and that is the legal job market three years ago will look different than it does today. And it may it may look different, not in a good way. It may be less robust uh, than it is today. And so I think law schools and legal educators and also people who are considering attending law school should be mindful of, of how these things change. Today's reality isn't necessarily tomorrow's reality.
0: When you talk about the potential for a looming recession, Do you say that just from the conventional wisdom of what goes up must come down or you feel like there's strong indicators? I mean, I remember in 2001, we were constantly driving around and saying, who is paying half a million dollars for one bedroom apartments in Chicago? Who in the yeah. heck is doing that? So yeah. that I guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. thankfully, we didn't buy one. But why do you say the looming recession? I mean, are they're good or just?
1: Yeah, no. Much of it just comes uh, from from what I'm reading uh, from people who know much more about this than I do. Of course, I don't want to position myself as an as an economist and, and someone who follows this closely. But people who do follow this closely, there's you know back and forth about the odds of a recession. I heard just yesterday, or maybe the day before. Uh, FedEx stock, for instance, fell twenty something percent. I think almost a quarter. Uh, uh, in one day, and and the person who was talking about it mentioned that FedEx is often kind of an indicator of the health of the overall economy, just given its its role in delivering goods to consumers. And so you know, with with those types of indicators, of course, they aren't directly related to the legal job market, and I don't expect you know, a prospective law student to, you know, say, oh, FedEx is down. So maybe I shouldn't go to law school. But these are all things that somebody in a position to actually make a determination about, say, class size and things like that. These are the types of things that people who are in those positions should be uh, paying attention to. And so, again, it really just comes down to what I'm seeing and reading. Also, uh, you know, there's been uh, more articles lately and I would say over the last month or so, talking about law firms pulling back on offers, not necessarily rescinding offers, but making fewer offers than they did last year or the year before, um, You know, shrinking their workforce through attrition and things of that nature, letting people leave, but not filling those positions. And these are the early indicators of what could be uh, a larger slowdown.
0: I know that I feel like in the early aughts, tuition was going up a lot. I mean, most people who graduate, say you graduated in 98, you probably came out with about $78,000 in debt. If you graduated in 2004, you might have come out with around $150,000 in debt. So what is going on with law school tuition right now? Is it going up a lot too, or it's staying about the same?
1: Well, it's, it's not going up a lot. So the tuition sticker price is going to increase basically every year, almost across the board. That's just how schools operate. Um, but most students, of course, don't pay the sticker price. You know, schools engage in, in tuition discounting. In some cases, they engage in rather heavy tuition discounting by offering what we often call scholarships. And they typically aren't scholarships, but that's a whole nother discussion for another time. From the perspective of the student, it is a discount, it's them paying less than what the sticker price is. And so in the aftermath of the Great Recession and its impact on the legal job market, law school applications and enrollments declined significantly. And, and during those years, and I'm talking roughly, let's just say 2010 to 2016 or so, the actual cost or the net cost of law school declined because schools were, again, discounting heavily to try to attract the students from this, this shrinking pool of Uh, prospective students. But as more people have drifted back to legal education over the last few years or so, and we haven't seen any dramatic increases, but there have been some some relatively noteworthy increases, particularly in light of the declines of of not too long ago. As more people have drifted back, we've seen the net costs of legal education increase a little bit. One percent, two percent, you know, that kind of thing. But of course the debt for law grads is still high. It's still among the highest of, of all borrowers uh, in the country. I think the last number I saw was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 160 grand or something um, like that on average. And, and so it's an expensive proposition. And I think another piece, just to uh, add one more element to this, I think another piece in the increased cost of attending law school is actually just the increased cost of living. And so, you know, through the graduate plus program, you can fully fund your education through loans, which account for your living expenses as well. And as living becomes more expensive, rent, gas, food, all those types of things, then loan uh, balances are going to increase as well. And that's separate from from the tuition that's paid.
0: Yeah. I am curious on your thoughts on this. If you're applying to law schools and you're admitted to a law school that added a whole other section because there are so many good applicants, should you maybe proceed with caution? Or also if you're admitted to a school that has kept its entering class size the same since pre-pandemic, maybe is it possible that might be a better pick if the finances and the rankings are similar?
1: Well, you know, the let's just say the adding of the section That wouldn't be a pressing concern for me, at least immediately. What I would do if I hadn't already, and I would hope at this point I would have, but let's just imagine that I hadn't already. I would inquire uh, with the law school um, about the resources it has to support students uh, finding professional opportunities. So, you know, whether it's internships or jobs, um, you know, what types of resources uh, does the school offer uh, its students and its graduates? Um, I would also review the school's employment uh, data And schools are required to post this data on their website. I would I would look at the employment data for at least the last two or three years to just see how many jobs did the graduates get. You know, the percentage is important, but then also just the raw number of how many jobs the graduates get. And then I would look at the class size of the class that I'm supposed to enter and look at the, the number of jobs that, that graduates got over the last couple years. And if the math doesn't add up, then I'm going to to get concerned um, about what the back end might look like for me. Now, in a case of a school that has remained, let's just say, small or smaller, uh, even though it could have added more students, I mean, all things being equal, the, the fewer people you have to compete with for jobs on a back end, Uh, The better. Right. You know, less competition is 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 the best case scenario uh, for someone or at least better than more competition. But what you have to keep in mind, and this is particularly true for students in or graduates in in metropolitan areas, the competition isn't just coming from your classmates. Right. It's coming from graduates from other schools as well. I mean, I live in, in the Washington, D.C. area. There's, you know, I think five or six law schools in D.C. proper and then a whole bunch uh, once you start to move out from there in the region. And so it really is a it, it really is a big picture kind of thing. And prospective students can make decisions for themselves as to whether or not they think law school is going to be a good investment. But I think legal educators are in a better position to see the big picture and in many ways to save folks from themselves. So sure, I could fill 150 seats, but based on this insight and this perspective I have, my my employment numbers can probably only sustain 120. So let me cap this class at 120, even though we have 150 who are willing to pay tuition.
0: So I wanna go to something you said about the ABA employment data. And I almost hate to ask this question because I feel like the data is so important and it was, work to get it all published, but the job numbers have been so good for the past two years. Is there a chance, I mean, by all means, look at them, but is there a chance they may not give a real clear and accurate picture of what the law school is doing for its graduates to get them in jobs?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there's definitely a chance because, I mean, of course, the whole I guess, process of getting a job really is driven by the graduate themselves. You know, I mean, my guess would be that most graduates get jobs with either minimal help or virtually no help from their law schools. And so really the question of resources, that's really a question of the individual. So if I'm going into law school as a student and I just make a determination that I'm going to maximize all the resources at my disposal, and not all law students do that, um, but if I make the decision that that's what I'm going to do, I just need to see what's available. I need to see what's theoretically, you know, uh, at my disposal once I begin my studies. But in all of this, I mean, for one, we have to, you know, accept with humility that there's no such thing as a perfect decision. Right. And, and, and we can't know everything um, on the front end. But if we're taking information and we're taking data from different sources and then just kind of making a story out of it, I think it really does increase our chances of making a decision that'll be more likely to work out for us in in the aftermath.
0: Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about your experiences when you were working at admissions in uh, 2006 and what you learned from that. We'll be right back.
1: when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's staf and get five hundred dollars off with code Happy twenty four. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures—all critical parts of the litigation process. Yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software?
0: And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you are listening to the ABA Journals "Asked and Answered." Today, I'm speaking with Access Lexis Aaron Taylor about law school admissions and employment outcomes. So in 2006, with the second to last great year for law school classes in a bit, you were working at admissions at University of Arkansas Little Rock School of Law, and it was your first time doing that for a law school. What did you learn from the experience? And you, you lived through that crisis, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, it was my, my second time. I started my career at the University of D.C., University of the District of Columbia, as an assistant director of admission. And then I did grad school admission for a brief time. And then I went back to legal education at Arkansas. Oh, lot. I
0: see. I guess we should add you were in private practice before all of that at a big firm, right?
1: Well, well, I worked for the uh, D.C. Office of Bar Council, which at, well, actually okay. it's called Disciplinary Council now. So that kind of tells you what we did. We chased...
0: I understand. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Allegedly, you know, yep. uh, unethical lawyers around D.C. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting work. <laughs> but my experience at, at Arkansas Little Rock was an interesting one. And, and really, my experiences in legal education at generally were interesting from the perspective of of the two schools I worked for as an admission officer. Both were schools that had low tuition. And they also were schools that had small student bodies. And so at both of those institutions, tuition was below $15,000. And and the number that keeps jumping out in my head is like $12,000, $13,000, something like that. And this was at a time when $25,000 tuition was was kind of the norm in in many cases. So, And then on top of that, I also had relatively robust scholarship budgets, particularly uh, at Little Rock. And so I was confident that the students that I lured to the law school, and of course, as an admission officer, that's, that's a big part of your job, um, helping them, helping create a vision for them, a vision of success for them. I was confident that the, the students I helped lure to the law school, their odds of getting a positive outcome were relatively high given that they were getting a great value for their education so you know it was i, I never had the guilt of, of say having somebody spend thirty thousand dollars a year for tuition graduate with six figures of debt and then uh come out with no real opportunities it was we had some folks who didn't come out with many opportunities but their debt was so much lower uh, uh, than it would have been somewhere else now i'll say one thing i did not do as an admission officer was pay attention to the big picture. You know, my entire objective was to get the current class in and then to almost immediately pivot to getting the next class in. And, and it's, admission is a really kind of um, high stakes kind of job in a sense that you know that your office is the primary source of revenue for the school. And in some schools, it's basically the only source of revenue. And you carry that pressure with you. And, and so, you know, you go from one straight to the other. I never really had an opportunity or even an inclination, truthfully, to look at, again, the big picture of what the larger employment picture looks like and what the likelihood of my entering students today getting entering a robust job market later. So that's something that, you know, I wish I had done more of. And that's something that I wish more admission officers today uh, did more of.
0: Is it common for an admissions office to have an economist on staff or to consult with an economist in their decision-making?
1: No, um, nothing. I, I haven't heard uh, anything like that or seen it for that matter. Um, but truthfully, I don't know if you necessarily need that. I mean, there there's a lot of public resources that you can use that could give you more information than you, than you would otherwise have. I mean, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has very detailed data, particularly for people in in uh, large metropolitan areas, very detailed data about uh, the legal job market. Um, you have various consultants. Citibank does a kind of like a forecast of the law firm sector um, that it publishes every year. Uh, you have the, you know, ABA data. You have the, the larger uh, kind of un- employment rate data. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot out here. Um, And so I don't know if you necessarily need an economist. I mean, it'd be great if you did. It'd be great if you had somebody whose job was to, you know, make those types of predictions. But I think you could do it without those resources.
0: So you mentioned um, the stock market and certainly uh, law firm hiring numbers um, and ABA employment data and the labor reports. Are there some other things that admissions offices look at for their decision making?
1: Well, as it relates to the the uh say employment picture really what admission officers do at least in my experience is you rely on your career services folks you rely on your career services folks for all types of insights as it relates to the jobs picture including them telling you hey this class didn't quite look as good as the other and they didn't quite you know that those types of things and so you rely on the people in the office that deals with this Uh, firsthand for any insights that you need to know as you're considering what your enrollment targets uh, should be and also what types of students you should uh, seek to admit.
0: And is it usually, is it the dean and or the university president's decision? Or does it just kind of depend on that person's management style?
1: The enrollment targets?
0: Yeah, what you, your final, final one, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it varies. In my experience, uh, the deans had a lot of uh sway as it pertained to the enrollment targets, and of course, they would have to get them approved by the provost or uh the president, whomever. Uh, but they had a lot of sway. In other situations, uh, you get directives that come from central administration that you need this many students, and um, and you know. In those cases, the the decision is disconnected from the realities on the ground because the person that is making the decision is literally just looking at revenue, literally just seeing students as sources of revenue and coming up with these numbers to square a budget as opposed to thinking about it from a more nuanced standpoint of, okay, we need to balance our need for revenue with what our outcomes may be uh, uh, three years from now.
0: Well, besides the significant or sole focus perhaps on revenue, are there common pain points between admissions offices, deans, and university administration?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the primary pain point is the revenue issue. Most law schools, almost all law schools are very highly tuition driven, getting up, upwards of, of, or I should say around three quarters of their revenue from tuition on average. You have schools that get basically all of their revenue um, from tuition and so bodies in the building, students in the building are literal sources of revenue. They are literal dollar signs, you know, if you're looking at it from a purely fiscal or budgetary standpoint, but by the same token, you have to look at what will the student experience be, not only when they graduate, but also while they're there. So. If you can't accommodate X number of students, either because uh, you don't have enough faculty or you don't have enough uh, student support services to accommodate this large number, then you really have a dilemma because you need the money on one end, but you don't have the resources on the other end and responsible uh, deans and responsible admission deans uh, will just say, we just won't get the revenue since we can't support our students um, adequately. And there was a time when I think, and this is pre-Great Recession, pre-enrollment downturn, when I really do think law schools just wanted to fill classes with as many people as possible because the idea was the demand for lawyers was so great that there wasn't a cap on, on uh, the number of law students you should enroll. And it was also a time when the mindset about what schools should be doing was a little different. So, I, you know, I went to law school 20, plus years ago at this point and a lot of the expectations that students have today, I never considered. We didn't have an academic support office. We didn't have a bar success person. You either made the grades or you didn't and you either passed the bar or you didn't. Now the, the, uh, expectations from students are different and and I think it's wonderful. I mean, law school should be supporting their students in that way. And so you really have to think about it, you know, in terms of the pain points, you really have to think about, you know, again, balance that revenue issue with what am I, what type of experience and what type of support am I offering uh, my students and at what number, at what population.
0: If you are a consumer, how can you avoid going to a law school that sees you as revenue? I think if you're a top 10 school, that's not a problem if you're at a top 50 school towards the bottom, that might be more of a problem for you if the job market changes.
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's a great question. Um, all you can do as a prospective student uh, or someone who is seeking admission to law school, all you can do is just try to, try to get as much information as possible. And, and so that's reviewing the school's 509 reports, which has all of kind of like their profile data. And again, they're required to post those on their uh, website, looking at the employment reports, uh, even talking to current students. I mean, you can get some of the most frank insight about a school from current students, and not just the ones that the law school you know connects you with. Um, I think they can be great for frank advice as well. But you know, of course, the law school isn't going to hire someone as an ambassador if they have a negative opinion of of the uh, law school and their experience there. But you can. Uh, get very uh, useful information from people, link up with them on social media. You know, you see someone that says, I go to so-and-so law school, you know, send them a message on LinkedIn and say, Hey, I'm considering law school. Can I talk to you about your experience there? Um, I also think that when a school just, just doesn't serve their students well in general, just doesn't serve their students well, I really think that bears out any outcomes. And so, of course, we're in a boom time now where, you know, it's easier for people to get jobs. And so it's easier for law schools to look like they're doing great work. But even in the context of that, there's still, you know, some schools that are lower than others and some schools that are higher than others. And I do think that if there's a school that is just really doing a disservice by their students, you'll see it in their transfer numbers you will see it in their employment numbers, you will see it in their bar pass numbers. I really do think a lot of that uh, bears out in the outcomes.
0: I think you're right. Not long ago, I mean, it feels like it was long ago, but earlier in my career, let's say, and yours, it was not uncommon to hear legal academics say a law degree is a useful tool. Now, I think that's true, I think, if you don't have to take on debt. And they, they finally stopped saying that around 2012, probably. But Do you think it's possible that sentiment has been replaced with the idea that people are specifically going to law school for JD Advantage jobs? Now, I'm sure some people have that in mind, but I'm not sure it's this great opportunity that law schools sometimes try to put in their message.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's an, an interesting question. So the ideal scenario, and I'm just talking about just the typical student going to law school to going to the typical law school. The ideal scenario is they'll come out with a job where they practice law. That's that's the ideal scenario. Now I've seen many uh, situations where a student came to law school already knowing what they were going to do after probably probably because they had a career previous to starting or they actually had an ongoing career. So they were going part time while still working in their field and they were going to use the degree to essentially uh go higher up uh uh in 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 their field. And a lot of these folks were JD advantage folks and they got very good jobs, um a uh, high paying jobs, stable jobs. And so I think one of the primary benefits of the downturn was it basically washed out most of the people who went to law school frankly for the reasons I went. And that is I literally had nothing better to do. And at that time, the whole narrative was, if you still need a few more years to figure yourself out after college, go to law school. You'll get three more years and you'll come out with this degree that you can use in so many different contexts. And truthfully, that's literally been my experience. That is literally been my experience. A law degree opened doors for me that frankly, I didn't even know existed. And it was all because again, I had no plans after graduating college. And so I said, okay, let me go over here. The downturn washed most of those folks out. And I think that's a good thing because of course 20 plus years ago when I went to law school, it was a much less expensive proposition. So the risks for me were much lower than they are for someone today. I tell folks all the time, I will never encourage anyone to go to law school today for the reasons that I went to law school all the way back then. And so what you got with that washing out effect that I mentioned, is you got people who came to law school much more motivated, came to law school with a much clearer sense of what they wanted to do, um, and a lot of those folks were JD advantage people, and so I think overall, and, and this goes back to the employment uh, numbers as well. I think overall what we're what we're seeing, and I hope it can stay this way um, for you know indefinitely into the future. We're seeing much more focused, motivated, and 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 deliberate people in law school today, and that bodes well for when they go out into the job market because now they can be strategic about their experiences in law school, and then they can also be strategic about how they engage the job search process, whether it's traditional uh, law practice jobs, lawyer jobs, or whether they're JD Advantage jobs that they contemplated and thought about and researched uh, beforehand.
0: Do you think that if ABA law school accreditation waives the entrance exam requirement. Do you think that might change how this aspect of getting people in law school that have researched it really well and there's that kind? If you want to be a lawyer since you were 10, go to law school. There's that idea. Do you think, though, that if there's not a requirement for the entrance exam anymore, that might change the picture a bit?
1: Not really. I mean, truthfully, I don't see law school's embracing any notion of, of, you know, test optional admission in large numbers. I just don't see it. I would be very surprised if 25% of law schools admitted, let's just say 15, 20% of their classes via a test optional uh, process. I, I just don't see it. Legal education isn't a bastion of innovation. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, okay. we don't tend to embrace change readily without a directive, particularly, you know, optional change. We don't tend to embrace that. Um, and frankly, there are a lot of admission people who believe in 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 the LSAT in ways that frankly belie what the test is designed to do. Right. And then, of course, there are also deans and professors and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, who would believe in it as well. So I don't see getting rid of. The uh, test requirement is fundamentally changing how law schools do admission. And that says let's we're advocating for uh, that requirement to go away, largely so schools can be empowered. schools that want to do it can be empowered to engage in, you know rigorous experimentation about what other factors matter. Outside of, say, the the test score and GPA paradigm. What other factors can we standardize? And, and give them value as they pertain to predicting whether or not someone is going to be successful in law school itself. And so that's really, you know, our position on it. We, we want to give schools uh, the freedom to quote unquote think outside of the box. But I don't, again, I don't see 503 going away as fundamentally altering or changing legal education admission really in much of any way that if that's going to happen, it's going to take you know, a decade or more of actual res- research and information coming up out of it.
0: I have the impression you're working on research about that, right?
1: Yeah, so we, we have a couple, and, and it's a bit different from how I framed it uh, just now, but we have a couple of, of programs, uh, including uh, our let Scholars Post-Baccalaureate program, where we're taking students through a year-long law school prep curriculum where they'll be exposed to contracts, torts, criminal law, as well as important skills like case briefing, outlining. They'll get some exposure into uh, law school exams and how to take those. And our idea is that once once they complete the curriculum, at least the ones who do, because we don't expect everybody to successfully complete it, once they complete the curriculum, they will be prepared to enter law school and really, you know, build on the foundation that they've been able to build in the program. Now, the interesting part about the post baccalaureate program is it's limited only to people who have a track record of low performance on the LSAT. So the highest LSAT you can have to be eligible for the program is, is a 25th percentile score. So, so the bottom quarter, uh, or lower, those are the people, uh, that we're focusing on because we, we, we are testing the question of whether or not rigorous exposure to relevant information about legal education, particularly the first year curriculum, can uh, essentially account for uh, a low LSAT score.
0: Very interesting. All right. That's everything I have to ask you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. Always a great conversation between us.
0: Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.